The contents of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. Hi, welcome to another edition of HealthKick. I'm Tim Boreham. It's a pleasure to have with me Nina Webster, who's the head of the ASX-listed therapeutics house, Dimerics. Now, the last time I spoke with Nina, it was uh, actually back in June last year, and things were starting to look a bit gnarly indeed with the unfolding pandemic. We might be in calmer waters now, but COVID-19 is still of great interest for uh, Dimerics, which is involved in two COVID trials heading into phase three stage. But the company's lead drug candidate is called DMX200, and it's all about a uh, wider suite of therapies. Fundamentally, it's about inhibiting the agents that cause inflammation. So in the case of COVID, there are respiratory implications of the disease. However, the uh, company's most advanced program tackles a kidney disease called FSGS, which I'm abbreviating because if I try to pronounce it, I reckon I'll trip up. Uh, It's also interested in uh, diabetic kidney disease and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So uh, welcome, Nina. Hello, Tim. Pleasure to be here. Excellent. No, great to talk. So Nina, what, what, what's it like being out of COVID for, for the company, uh, just, just from an operational uh, point of view? Must be quite a relief, I, I would imagine. Uh, yes, Tim. Well, uh, most of the team is actually based in Melbourne. So you can imagine we've uh, been working in fair isolation for quite a period of time since the pandemic began. Actually, life has not changed significantly for us. For the most part, we've been very fortunate that, that the industry and the sector uh, was able to work from home with a lot of our operations being overseas or interstate. So um, we're in good shape, Tim. Thank you. Now, just, just to sort of start at the start, perhaps you could uh, just remind listeners about the mechanism of action for, for, for DMX 200, what it fundamentally seeks to achieve. Absolutely. Now, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, we're primarily focused on um, looking at potential treatments for patients with inflammatory diseases. And so we have the three near opportunities at the moment, as you mentioned, the first in focal segmental glomerulosclerosis or FSGS. As you said, don't say that too fast. And then, of course, we have pivoted into two COVID studies uh, as the pandemic hit last year. Uh, both in phase three, one in ICU patients with respiratory complications and the other one in patients presenting at hospital but not yet in ICU. Now, in terms of how the drug works, it is uh, essentially works on the immune system, the inflammatory system. Uh, What happens particularly with COVID-19, if we start there, is that typically you have a lung dysfunction due to the human immune response to the virus. And that's where our own immune system overreacts and causes these respiratory complications and, in fact, a flooding of the lung. DMX200 inhibits certain signaling within that pathway, and therefore it prevents migration to the the area in the lungs and prevents that flooding of the lungs and subsequent fibrosis. It actually works in a very, very similar mechanism in the kidneys, same principle where it'll it'll inhibit the signaling to attract the inflammatory response to the um, kidney, therefore preventing the subsequent fibrosis um, from that, uh, that influx of inflammation. Yes, I mean, really, yeah, inflammation uh, it causes so many disorders, doesn't it? That's right. 
It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it's the body's immune response, isn't it? That's right. It's an overreaction to the immune response. An overreaction, yes. Okay. And so with um, FSGS, focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, I think I might have actually got it (laughs) or close enough. Now, that's a rare kidney disease that causes permanent scarring. I'm just wondering where you're sort of at in terms of the... uh, Uh, the clinical trials. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, it is a rare disease attacks the kidney and it causes that irreversible scarring. And eventually these patients require um, dialysis or in fact a transplant. And sadly, 40% of those who get a transplant get reoccurring FSGS. Now at the moment, there are very few other drugs in development um, and no uh, treatments on the market anywhere in the world for patients with uh, FSGS. So the prognosis remains very poor. Now, on the back of some very promising data in our phase two study we announced in 2020, we've now moved forward into our phase three program, which is the last program before market. Now, that study we're expecting to open in 14 different countries across the world. So it is a true global study. And we received our first regulatory and ethics approval in October. Not surprisingly, Tim, that's that's in Australia, given that Australia has the fastest, fastest clinical study startup times. We expect to recruit the first patient before the end of the year, and we're expecting interim data for that study in early 2022. Okay, great. All right. And um, how many many patients do do you expect to recruit? So overall, the complete study would be approximately 250. In the first um, part, so we have part one of the study to interim analysis, that will be 72 patients. And is it uh, difficult to recruit uh, these patients? Well, being an orphan indication, of course, it is a challenge identifying where these patients are and, in fact, them meeting certain inclusion criteria for a study. That said, we've partnered with IQVIA. IQVIA is one of the largest, or if not the largest, um, clinical research organization or CRO globally. And IQVIA have actually run large FSGS studies globally before. So they are already familiar where these patients are, where the clinical sites are that recruit patients. And so we're in very good hands working with them. And how many uh, people a year would be afflicted with FSGS or how many are there cumulatively? Yeah, so in terms of market, there's about 210,000 sufferers globally of FSGS. And if we think of US market in particular, there's about 80,000 FSGS sufferers in the US at any one time. And it is growing. Now, within that, um, the orphan drug pricing, and we'll look at what is the market value with that. Orphan drug pricing typically is around seven thousand US dollars per month. That's that's not unusual. And when you think of eighty thousand patients all having been diagnosed by biopsy receiving a, a drug, that's a significant market market potential. And eighty thousand in the US out of two hundred ten thousand that that that's that's quite a high proportion, isn't it? So yes, it's because it's largely driven by biopsy rates, Tim. It's interesting. Australia has the largest growing rate of FSGS, and it's not because we have more people here with FSGS. It's because Australia has a fairly liberal approach to biopsy. Ah, uh, okay. So when you say liberal, they, they we we do a lot of them. We do a lot of them. Yes. Yeah, I always thought the US were, were very keen on them, and it's got something to do with the. Uh, I think there are some sort of complicated factors, but but it's got a lot to do with the, the reimbursement system, which encourages them. That's right. So there, you, you're absolutely correct. Across uh, many parts of Europe, US, Australia, um, there's a reasonably high um, biopsy rate. 
but then you have some other territories where the biopsy rates will be much lower. Yeah, okay. And um, I'm presuming it's it's kind of like a Western uh, disease. It's the result, perhaps, of the uh, the wages of sin. Not not at all. In fact, the cause is unknown. So so primary FSGS, um, it's it's actually unclear, and which is why there's a problem with those who do receive the transplant and you get forty percent get reoccurring FSGS. Uh, they don't know why. Interestingly, in terms of if you look at uh, the the population or epidemiology, it's typically higher in the the black population than the white. But the biopsy rates are typically higher in those territories, as we mentioned before, US, Europe, Australia. And, and interesting, China. China has a high biopsy rate too. Didn't uh, didn't know that? No, no. Uh, something I, I have recently discovered as well. Uh, so so 210,000, it, it, it's an orphan disease, which means it's a rare disease, but 210,000 is still a reasonable number. So it's, if you like, it, it's rare, but not too rare. That's exactly right. It's, it's enough patients um, to make it a very attractive market proposition um, with those prices I mentioned previously as well. And of course, because it is an orphan disease, we have orphan drug designation in US, Europe, and in fact, now the innovation passport equivalent in UK. And that gives us a fast, faster pathway to market. So we're looking at accelerated endpoints in the clinical study. And that means if we meet certain endpoints halfway through the study, we can go to market halfway through the study. Okay. What actually is the primary endpoint or endpoints? So the primary endpoint will be looking at protein in the urine, which is a measure of the rate of kidney disease progression and its relationship to kidney function. So it is a surrogate endpoint. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. We've also got, you're also interested, of course, in diabetic kidney disease which I think is something you, you're actually look, looking at earlier. Now, that's actually a bigger market, isn't it? But I presume it's uh, a little bit more crowded. Yeah, that's right. So diabetic kidney disease is something we've also been looking at. We announced some very promising data in 2020. And in fact, when we look at the data of that, 30% of all participants in that study actually fell below the threshold for diabetic kidney disease diagnosis by the end of the study. So that was really promising. Um, what was interesting here, though, is that in terms of timing of, of diabetic kidney disease and the next steps in that is that diabetic kidney disease is clearly not an orphan indication. It is not a rare disease. In fact, as diabetes rises, so too does the incidence of diabetic kidney disease, given that there's around between 20 and 40 percent of those with diabetes have kidney disease. So it's not eligible for accelerated approval. So the development pathway for diabetic kidney disease is naturally three to four years behind FSGS. And, and diabetic kidney disease, it's, is, is it fundamentally treatable or, or, or not really? No, it is a progressive disease. It's uh, much in the same way as FSGS. FSGS seems to be more aggressive, so typically end-stage renal failure in less than five years. Diabetic kidney disease is also progressive. The, the trajectory tends to give you a little longer to get to end-stage renal failure. Uh, but nevertheless, you're very much on that pathway. Yeah, okay, okay. So diabetic kidney disease would be the the bigger market in dollar terms. No, interestingly, it's not, uh, Tim. Um, and I think this comes down to pricing. If you think of what we spoke about before with FSGS, albeit you only have uh, 210,000 patients uh, with FSGS, if they're retailing at around the $7,000 per month, and then you look at diabetic kidney disease, which is more the standard drugs uh, and drug pricing, which typically retail between 500 and 600 US dollars per month. 
when you look at the number of patients against that pricing versus FSGS, actually FSGS is a very attractive market. Okay, sure. So um, in, in in value terms, FSGS is the uh, the bigger market. The same, if not bigger, correct. It also has a longer exclusivity period because DMX200 is a new chemical entity. It comes with it uh, the expected exclusivity periods with that first regulatory filing. And that means, for example, uh, with orphan drug designation in the US, we would look at seven years exclusivity and 10 years in, in Europe. That, that period of time, that exclusivity period of time means it's a time where no generic may enter the market and may not even challenge your patents. Sure, sure. So you've got seven years or, or 10 years to uh, make hay while the uh, sun shines, basically. Correct, yes. While you don't have any competition. All right. And just turning to the uh, COVID trials, you, you, you mentioned, Nina, you, you've got two trials or you're, you're involved in two trials. Now, now you're, they're described as independent trials, so you're, you're not running them per se, are you? But, but DMX200 is being used. That, that's correct. So the first study, REMAP-CAP, it's an investigator-led global study. It's endorsed by the WHO in patients with COVID-19 pneumonia. So this is patients who are pretty sick, they're in ICU, and that is currently recruiting across Europe and UK And exactly as you said, that's run by uh, the consortium of clinical trialists and global experts. We are providing study drug. Uh, Of course, we have to monitor pharmacovigilance safety. That's we we collect data for the drug across the world in all clinical studies. But we equally, we own the data at the end of it for DMX200. So we would be responsible for commercialization. I guess importantly, you don't uh, don't fund the trial. You don't have to fund the trial. That's right. So REMAP-CAP is predominantly funded by the European Union through the H2020 European uh, COVID-19 Emergency Research Response. That's a tongue twister. (laughs) And in addition, uh, Dimerics was was awarded uh, $1 million from the Australian government's Medical Research Future Fund. Um, and that supported our inclusion and our manufacturing of the drug to go into that study. When we talk about COVID pneumonia, is that is that in effect ARDS, the you know, acute respiratory distress syndrome, which I think most people who die from COVID die of that? That's right. So COVID pneumonia is, if you like, the umbrella and uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS is a, a subset of that. But absolutely. So at the very end of, of COVID, those who are really, really sick, generally have acute respiratory distress syndrome. And those are generally the patients being recruited in the VMAP-CAT study in Europe. In contrast, the study we have in India and Australia, Clarity 2, that is in patients who are presenting to hospital with respiratory complications, but they are not, they do not have ARDS. It's not that severe yet. So they're not in ICU. Is there sort of a long COVID uh, aspect of this as well in, in terms of uh, respiratory problems? emerging uh, well after the uh, the diagnosis and supposed recovery? Absolutely, absolutely. I think because we think um, based on that lung, uh, lung disease pathway, we think DMX200 will benefit those patients by reducing the inflammation and fibrosis in the lung, and it res- reduces those respiratory complications. That's the plan. But what that means is that by reducing the effect at the time, you also reduce what's being termed long COVID, which are those symptoms that remain well past the the virus itself. Um, If you've reduced the damage at the time, you reduce the effect uh, um, and increase the recovery time post-virus. Yeah, okay. Okay, so so it can, to a degree, prevent long COVID. That would be the plan. And I think particularly when you look at the the number of, of drugs that have been looked at globally throughout this pandemic, our approach is unique 
uh, it's patented and it's potentially complementary to others that have been investigated as well. And I think the other part that's important is that if it's effective in these two COVID-19 studies or or one of those COVID-19 studies, it would likely be effective against any strain as well as any other infection-related pneumonia. So there's actually a bigger opportunity here than just COVID. And, and, and what do you sort of make of the, uh, the COVID landscape in terms of therapies for the inflammation aspect? There's been quite a bit of work going on, hasn't there? But uh, arguably, success has been pretty limited. That's right. That's right. In recent times, in fact, in the last couple of months, we've seen a couple of antivirals that look like they may have some promising um, effect in the space. Typically, though, uh, and this putting into the perspective of where we sit with that, with DMX200, antivirals typically have to be given within three to five days of getting the virus. And of course, in the first three to five days, many patients are asymptomatic. So there's a question of of how much benefit there will be, uh, because once the virus is replicated, the the antivirals don't have the same efficacy. The other part there, of course, is that uh, if you think of last year uh, in 2020, there were so many companies that went into COVID studies and they, they ran into them very, very quickly with poorly designed studies. And what you found that there were studies of the same drug, some saying it worked, some saying it didn't, some saying it's safe, some saying it's not. Um, and it was really difficult to navigate and interpret what was being successful and, and what was not. The advantage we've had is that we're working with two very, very uh, reputable groups, credible groups, WHO endorsed studies. And it means that these studies are extremely well designed and whatever data comes out of these studies will be credible and reputable. And uh, just just sort of turning to finances. So basically your key commitment is to fund the um, FSGS phase three study, which is uh, which is kicking off. So, so that would be the key monetary uh, commitment at the moment? Yes. Yeah, so at the end of the September quarter, uh, we had about 19 million in cash, and that includes the placement and share purchase plans that were received just after the quarter end. Now, you, um, you may recall that we actually completed a placement and a share purchase plan earlier this year. It was led by our new major institutional investor, which is Andrew Chapman's Merchant Fund Management Group, and they subscribed to six million of that. We also had some very strong support from Peter Mers, who's our other large um, shareholder, um, who also committed to maintain his position throughout that placement. So that raise was really transformational for the company, as, uh, as you pointed out. That will fully fund the FSGS program right through to that first interim analysis point. Now, what we did is that we also had attaching options issued as part of that placement and share purchase plan. And those options may expire on the first interim data readout, which means that once those are also converted, we are then funded through to the accelerated marketing approval for FSGS. So as a result, we're really, really quite delighted to be able and in a position to deliver on that study. What would the uh, options raise if uh, exercised? So the options would raise approximately 25 million. 25 million. Okay. Okay. So our balance sheet is is the strongest it's ever been in the company's history. And and with that solid financial base, we really are in a great financial position to take those steps uh, towards commercialization. Okay, great. And it sounds like like the options are in the money or close to it? The share purchase plan was actually, uh, and the placement was at 20 cents. So we have been trading above that 20 cents consistently um, throughout all of that placement and post that placement. The 
the options are at 40 cents. So there's a little way to go for those. But with the interim data, we would expect that to, to be north of that on, on positive data. And speaking of the share price, your, your, your shares are sort of quite interesting, I guess, because they're basically the same, same level as a year ago, but there have sort of been some interesting spikes along the way, sort of periods of volatility. I think you also need to put it into perspective there, there Tim, if you think of market cap, um, a year ago versus now, um, we have currently have a market cap of uh, around that 80, 80 million, um, whereas a year ago, I think it was around 30, 35 million. So it's a significantly different market cap. Yes, yes, yes. No, that's a, uh, that, that's a fair increase, isn't it? But uh, still, still sort of um, cheaply valued, if you like, relative to some other stocks, which, which I won't mention, but, but you know, I think you, you know who they are and, and they're yeah. in the early stage and they're, you know, some of them are valued at more than a billion dollars. So go, go bigger. Yeah, and I think with three near-term opportunities, you know, we really do have an opportunity here for some significant value increase. And on that note, and, and in summary, uh, what should shareholders uh, look look forward to? Yeah, so I think you can imagine with, with multiple phase three studies underway at the moment, we're extremely busy. And I am very much looking forward to providing uh, market updates in due course. So we anticipate providing guidance on all those near-term propositions, including the FSGS uh, recruitment, initial data on the two COVID studies, We also look forward to presenting additional data uh, and information on the longer term opportunities, including that DMX 700 program in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, as well as the next steps in the diabetic kidney disease program. So essentially, it's our goal to to continue that development for um, commercially attractive products. Uh, in that unmet need medical space. Yeah, you mentioned COPD, which which is good because uh, I meant to mention it. That that's obviously a huge market uh, as well. That's right. Um, if you think of the the uh, top five causes of death in the world, this is the third third cause um, largest cause of death in the world, and of the top five, it's the only one with increasing mortality rates year on year. So it is a huge problem. Um, and if we can uh, develop a product to, to fight COPD, that would be amazing. That would indeed be a breakthrough. That's right. Yeah, great. All, 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 uh, all very interesting. It sounds like uh, investors have uh, got qu- quite a bit to, uh, to, to watch out for, but particularly with, uh, with, with, with uh, trial updates. That's right. Lots of things happening in Dimerics, and we very much look forward to updating the market. Absolutely. Great to talk, Nina. Thank you very much for your time, Tim. Appreciate it. Thanks.